Our Holy Father, we're so thankful that you have blessed us in a state where though we have our share of problems, and though we are certainly not more righteous than, say, the people in California, nonetheless, you have blessed our nation and you have blessed our state. But now you're judging our nation and you are judging states across this great land. So may the church of God rise up this week. May their voices be heard. May you frustrate the plans of those godless men and women who want to kill little babies in the womb. May we uphold your law, your Moral dictates, you said that when we do, it becomes like a schoolmaster to lead people to faith in Christ. As they see their sin, they see their need for forgiveness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bled for every sin, including abortion and homosexuality and adultery and murder and greed, everything, so that we could be clean and made new. So may we never be ashamed of the message that you've entrusted to us. We're here today to worship you through your word, as is in music and in prayer. And as we open your word, we pray that the Spirit would open our hearts, that he would be the ultimate teacher here. I pray that he would fill me and anoint me and use me, that together we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you are joining us for the first time, we're between verse-by-verse exposition of a, Bible, of a book of a Bible, and we're doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. This is actually the 13th message in that series, and right now we are examining that portion of coming events known as the Great Tribulation. So we began in the Olivet Discourse, and As we work through the first 14 verses, we've stepped back on a few occasions and we've focused on some specifics of what Jesus has covered in that portion of Scripture before we go back. Let me just remind you of what the Lord said there to those four men. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will." Now, knowing that many people today don't even know what the abomination of desolation is, and yet it is such a game changer that Jesus said, when you see this event take place, the world is going to see an expression of the wrath of God that they have never seen in in all of human history. Not even in the great flood, as terrible as that was, they're going to see an expression of God's hand that will cover the planet in ways that man could not even imagine. And it will be triggered by this event known as the abomination of desolation. And so last time, we looked at the 70th week prophecy that Daniel is referenced in this verse, 15th verse. 
Jesus said, when you see what Daniel the prophet wrote about, the abomination of desolation. So we stepped back and we asked what precisely was this particular event? Who will do it? When will it happen? And we're going to hone in this morning a little bit more on some of the specifics. The devil has a man, he's often nicknamed Satan's Superman, who's coming with incredible power, with great intellect. Women will swoon at his feet, children will speak of him with a sense of awe, and he will control the world like we have never seen in all of recorded history. And our passage this morning focuses on one aspect of what this man is going to do. So I hope you have found it, 2 Thessalonians 2. If you don't have a Bible, come to meet the pastor and we will get you one. Follow along, beginning now in verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Years ago, I told you about a man who bought a barometer from Abercrombie and Fitch Back then, it was a sporting goods, an excursion store of sorts. And finally, his expensive barometer arrived, and he took it out of the box, and it was stuck on hurricane. And I hear they sent me this defective barometer, and he shook it and banged it. On the train ride into the city of New York that day, He wrote the company of how discouraged he was as he was looking forward to his new barometer. But his trip, unbeknownst to him and most people in New York, was delayed that day because by the end of the day, the hurricane of 1938 came and it wiped out his entire home and it was one of the single biggest worst hurricanes that Long Island and the city had ever seen. And so God has given us a barometer, and it does not need to be adjusted. It simply needs to be believed. But most people think that somehow it's broken, that we can ignore it, that we can go on living as if nothing is happening in this world. But God is going to allow under his providence and under his sovereignty the evil one to come and release a man who's known as the Antichrist. He's called by some 30 different names in both sides of the Bible. He's called the willful king, the little horn. 
He's called the King of Fierce Countenance. So most of you know him by his most popular name. He's called the Antichrist. The word anti is a Greek prefix, and it means instead of, he will come in the place of Christ, and it also means against. And this man will wear both sides of the prefix. He will come against Christ, and he will come in the place of Christ. Now, in the history of the world, many men have sought to rule the world. 1,500 years before Christ, the great pharaohs of Egypt sought to rule the world, but they only got as far as the Middle East. 600 years before Christ, we studied Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, and his empire included most of Western Asia. 300 years before Christ, Alexander the Great stepped on the scene. His empire included East India, and for a brief time, he ruled Western uh, Asia, North Africa, and most of Southeast Europe. At the time of Christ, the Roman uh, Caesars came, but again, their empires were limited. In more modern times, Napoleon stepped on the scene. He had aspirations to rule the world, but of course, he was defeated at Waterloo. In the last century, there was certainly Stalin and Lenin and Hitler, who all wanted to dominate the entire world. Yet there's never been a leader in the history of man, in the history of recorded history, who has ever ruled the entire planet. But there is coming a man, known as the Antichrist, who will wear the disguise of a peacemaker, who will literally rule the world. Now, God's book tells us not only how time began, he also tells us how this age will end. And there's coming a world leader under the sovereignty of God. Remember, Luther was right when he said the devil is Satan's, the devil is God's devil. In other words, the devil cannot do anything that God in his own power and sovereignty allows him to do. But there's coming a time when God is going to give the evil one an expression of freedom that he's often dreamed about, and through his false Messiah, he is going to rule the world and seek the worship of the world. And God wrote about it in this book. God wrote the future before it happened, and we would do well to listen and to heed what God has to say, because this is not simply about events way out there in the future. He's writing to churches in Thessalonica and across the planet in our day, because these are truths that have great application for us. There's a note-taking outline there in your bulletin, and let me kind of give you a preview of where we're headed this morning. The first five verses, we're going to learn something about the revealing of this coming Antichrist so that Christians won't mistake when he arrives. And then in verses six to eight, we're going to learn something about how he's being held back or restrained. We'll learn why it is uh, that he's not on the scene now and what it is, or maybe better, who it is that is currently restraining him. And then in verses nine through 12, we'll learn about the opportunity when he has given freedom to rule. So let's begin with how the Antichrist is revealed, how he's revealed. Here in the opening two verses, Paul reveals why it is that he is addressing this issue of the coming Antichrist. And so let me give you some of the historical context. He begins by telling us something about the climate of his coming, the climate of his coming. 
Now, we know from chapter 1 that the church at Thessalonica was experiencing intense persecution. And since the Old Testament describes this coming time frame known as the day of the Lord as a time of great persecution, not to mention they heard, no doubt, some of the things that Jesus had taught on it, they believed that maybe they were in that day that they had somehow been misinformed or misunderstood about the rapture and that they were indeed in the day of the Lord, that they had miscalculated in their theology how Christ would come back for his church. Notice verse 1, now we request you, brethren, the NAS 2020 says brothers and sisters because it's a generic term, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. He's speaking about our gathering together to him. That's what we call the rapture. When the dead in Christ will be raised, when Jesus will bring back with him from heaven those who have already died, he'll reunite their spirits that are in heaven with the body that's in the ground or wherever it may be. And then those of us who are alive will be caught up and will meet the Lord in the air. Jesus unfolded this mystery after Judas left there in the upper room. He said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. The old English says mansions, but in 1611, the word mansion meant a room. So when you think about this place that God has prepared for us, and it's just the capital city of a new heaven and a new earth that is yet to be created, it's a big house. It's a family place. And it's filled with many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, as this chart helps us to see, we've been studying the next great event known as the rapture. And after the rapture takes place, shortly thereafter, there'll be a period known as the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. It's called in the prophet Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's or Israel's trouble. In the New Testament, it's called the great tribulation. And both Daniel and Jesus and the apostle John divides it, if you remember, into two halves. The first half is described as a time of great tribulation, but when this event that we're studying this morning takes place, the abomination of desolation, then it really gets bad, such that it is now modified with the word great tribulation. Now, it's important that when you think about the return of Christ, that you do not confuse the catching up, our gathering together with him, with his second coming. Now, we don't believe that Christ will come back twice. He's just coming back in two stages. It's much like his first coming. It happened in a number of stages. He was incarnated in Mary's womb. He grew up in Nazareth. He began his public ministry at 30. He ministered for approximately three and a half years. He was crucified, dead, raised. He walked on the earth for another 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven off of the Mount of Olives. Well, even so, the return of Jesus from heaven has a series of events. First is the catching up of the church, the harpazo. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be harpazo, caught up. And in the Latin translation of the Bible that was used for nearly a thousand years by Christians, it's the Latin word that gives us our English word, rapture. And so the rapture, however, is distinctly different. Remember, they're separated by seven years. At the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. At the second coming, seven plus years later, he comes back 
with his saints. At the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. We shall be caught up and meet the Lord in the air. But at the second coming, his feet come back and touch the earth. He comes to the earth. Clearly a distinctly different event. He will catch us up, 1 Corinthians 15 says, in the twinkling of an eye. That's really quick. Whereas at the second coming, the Bible says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. The rapture of the church is imminent. That means he could come at any moment. Nothing ever prophetically has needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come and catch up his church. Whereas obviously the second coming is a prophetically driven event. All kinds of things have to happen. For instance, most of the prophecy that deals with the second coming concerns Israel and any events in and around Israel. Well, Israel had been out of the land for 1,900 years. They would have to be back in the land. They would have to be reestablished as a nation. And after 1,900 years, God, just as he prophesied, both by Moses and by Jesus and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, he would gather them from the four corners of the world and put them back in the land. So nothing prophetically has to happen for Jesus to return. All kinds of things has to happen for his second coming, the return to happen. So when Paul speaks of our gathering together, he's speaking here of the rapture. We request you, again, verse 1, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice how this church is described. He uses a verb. It's translated here, shaken. It's used outside of the New Testament in first century Greek of a ship that had literally been shaken from its moorings. The second verb he uses is disturbed, and it describes an ongoing, continual state of agitation. And so these Christians through the teaching of false teachers, had been shaken, they had been disturbed to the core. Now, as this slide shows, again, remember, the rapture of the church is going to happen, the second coming will happen, the millennial reign of the Messiah will happen, that's a thousand years long, and then the final judgment of all men, the great white throne judgment, will happen. And Paul, in this portion of Scripture, is referring to a time frame known as the day of the Lord. And I did a whole sermon on this. This is, again, the 13th message in this series, but I did one message just on the day of the Lord, and that might be helpful for some who are new to the Bible. But the day of the Lord mimics a biblical day from sundown to sundown. It's not referring to a specific 24-hour day, but to a protracted period of time, just like the day of your youth. And it mimics a biblical day. It starts in great darkness, and the shadows are coming in our day. But when the church is removed, it gets very dark on the world. And when Jesus comes back at the second coming, it gets bright as light, and he reigns in a glorious, magnificent way for a thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, as we will study, where Satan has been bound, he will be loosed, and the children born to tribulation saints during the time of the millennial reign will have to make a decision for Christ, and Satan will have one final rebellion, and then we will go into eternity future. So again, he's describing this long protracted period of time. Now, the church at Thessalonica did not have the book of Revelation. 
hadn't been written yet. It was indeed the last book written in the New Testament canon. They didn't have all the chilling events that are recorded in chapters 4 through 19. But they knew enough that if indeed they were in the day of the Lord and they thought the persecution they were experiencing must have signaled that truth, especially in light of the false teaching that was behind that, that this was bad. They were shaken to the core. They were trembling. Now, verse 2 reminds us of three witnesses. Paul will quote Moses to the Corinthians, and he'll say in 2 Corinthians 13, every fact is to be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So these people had three required witnesses. The only problem was is that they were false witnesses. Look at verse 2. It indicates that some of this false teaching came by a spirit. That is, someone stood up in their assembly and they spoke in a tongue. It's called the gift of tongues in the New Testament. The word glossolalia is always used in reference to a real language. It is like nothing what the Hindus do today that mimics what many Pentecostal brethren do today. It's just gibberish. There's no miracle behind that. Some lady called me and then she wrote me a letter angry in the last 30 days telling me I didn't believe in the miraculous. And I thought, you're the one who's diminishing the miraculous. What you are doing with the gift of tongues is not the miracle of Pentecost. The miracle of Pentecost was a real language, and what the Pentecostals are doing is often duplicated by both unbelievers and even other world religions. So someone stood up. It was a miracle. They spoke a language they had never um, learned before. They thought this is a word from God. But remember, Satan is a great imitator. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And so they thought, okay, there is a witness. We got a tongue. In addition, notice he says you're not to be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit, and then the second witness, or a message. The King James says a word. It's the word logos. A word of prophecy. What was prophecy? Prophecy in the early church was often expressed when a man or a woman could stand up in the church and they became a direct conduit of revelation. A parallel today would be a man or a woman reading the Bible in church. And so God gave direct revelation. Why did he do this? Because the Bible was not completed yet. And they needed direction. Now, they were to test the spirits to see whether they were of God. And the prophets were to challenge one another and check out one another. So they had this second witness. The day of the Lord is here. Someone spoke in tongues and said it. A spirit came. A word of prophecy came. Must be true. Not necessarily. And so they thought the day of the Lord had come. The old King James says at hand. The new King James says had come because the word at hand had a different meaning than it does today. This is why a modern literal translation might be useful to you. So they had thought the day of the Lord had come. Worse, there's a third witness. Let everything be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. A letter had come. A letter, Paul says, as if from us. So they had a spiritual utterance. They had a misguided prophecy by a false teacher. And then there was this third confirmation where someone wrote a letter as if it came from an apostle. 
By the way, that's why he will end this letter. If you look over a page at chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So somehow he put his signature on the letter so that no one could say this letter was from Paul unless it had this distinguishing mark. By the way, cults and false religions today are established on the same three false criteria, a spirit, a message, or a letter. There's always some additional revelation. So Joseph Smith liked women, had 44 wives. I'll write a book that will justify my own evil. That's precisely what he did. There's always some vision, some dream, some additional revelation. And by the way, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, the early church fathers for the next 500 years, the writings and commentators done by Christians indicate that those gifts dried up when God finished his Bible. Why? Because they were no longer needed. You can't add to the scripture. You can't subtract to it. So God gave us a plumb line. So we go to the plumb line. And if if it's an addition, don't do that. Revelation warns of that in the last chapter. And you certainly don't want to take away from what God has said, as many are doing today. And so they're justifying all kinds of evil. Saying, well, we just misunderstood this. Someone was out in the hallway with me after the first service and said, you know, that man you witnessed to, he's really mad at you. Really? What's he really mad at you about? Because you said that the pastor of his Presbyterian church here in town, it was just fine for him to marry his son to his boyfriend. No, it's not. You can call it a marriage. It's not a marriage. Supreme Court of the United States can call it a marriage. It's not a marriage. Abraham Lincoln said to a young boy one day, if a dog, if a dog's tail is called a leg, how many legs does the dog have? He said, well, he has five legs. He said, no, he only has four legs. You can call a tail a leg, but it's not. It's a tail. And you can call two men or two women being married, but it's not a marriage, not in the eyes of Almighty God. And so there's all kinds of deception that is going on in our day. Let no one deceive you in any way. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That's number one. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's number two. So he's countering their three false testimonies with three three true testimonies. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's number three. So let's start with the first reason as to why they could not possibly be in the day of the Lord. Look at verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now, if you have the New American Standard, you will notice the words, it will not come, are in italics. In biblical theology, italics are not given for emphasis like we do in modern English. They are supplied by the translators for words that are not in the Greek text. And they do that because when you translate from one language into another language, sometimes in the Greek or the Hebrew, there's an implied meaning, and so they'll insert that. Or sometimes to be grammatically correct as you go from one language to another, to be linguistically correct, you supply those additional words. 
But nonetheless, while those words are not there, they are helpful in that they are thoughtful. For it will not come. And if you were a careful reader, you'd ask, well, what is the it? Well, the nearest antecedent is the day of the Lord. Please understand, he's not saying that the rapture cannot happen until the apostasy comes first, but the day of the Lord cannot happen until the apostasy comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So the rapture happens, the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and when it happens, there'll be utter chaos on the world. Millions and millions of true born-again people will be gone. Cars will crash, planes will go down, machines will be left to function on their own, surgeries will stop. There'll be utter chaos across the planet. And so people are going to look for leadership. We saw a smidgen of the need when COVID came along and people were willing to give up their freedoms across the planet so that we could have some sense of control and safety. And so many will turn from God during this time to a man that will be Satan's counterfeit Messiah. He's called the man of lawlessness. And so when the apostasy happens and the man of lawlessness is revealed, then and only then you know that you're in this time frame known as the day of the Lord. Now remember, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but of that day of his second coming he's referring to, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, it may seem strange to us that Jesus, who could say, I and the Father are one, meaning we are equal, who is the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, could say that he does not know the day of his second coming. But you understand it when you read texts like Philippians 2 that speaks of the humiliation of Christ, not counting the glory that he shared in heaven. He became a man and humbled himself. And he was willing for a period of time to lay aside the free exercise of certain divine attributes. He chose to live in total dependence upon the Spirit of God as God asks you to live in dependence upon him. And so understand, 2 Thessalonians 2 makes it clear that Jesus cannot come at his second coming until the apostasy and the man of lawlessness happens. Now, does Jesus, people ask, know today when his second coming? Of course he does. He's in his resurrection body, and he's sharing and expressing all of the same attributes that the Father and the Spirit of God has. So people say, well, now wait a minute. This phrase, no one knows the day or the hour, you studied with us last week, and Jesus affirmed it, John recorded the same numbers, that the coming tribulation period is seven years. Seems to me, Pastor, that when the tribulation period starts, and it's exactly seven years, 1260 days, three and a half years divided into two, 1260, 1260, three and a half, three and a half, times, times, half a times, time, times, half a times, seven years. Seems like we ought to be able to calculate the day or the hour. Now remember, we'll come to it. As Jesus unfolds for us the events that will lead up to his coming on the clouds in glory, he will say in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So his second coming happens after the tribulation. Here's a chart. 
to help you maybe to visualize it. You will often hear me say, and other pastors like myself, that after the church is caught up, there's seven plus years until the second coming of Christ. Why do we say seven plus years? Because again, if you were here last time and we studied Daniel 9, and I have four sermons just on that, we hit the highlights. The seven-year tribulation period does not start until the prince who is to come signs a peace treaty. So he has to come on the scene. You say, well, how much time will it take? We don't know. I assume it's rather quick, but we don't know. Could be days, weeks, or months, but this man will come on the scene, and he will sign a peace treaty, and it will begin the seven-year clock. Then immediately after the seven-year tribulation period, Jesus comes back. How immediately after? We don't know. Three days? Five days? We don't know. This may be a partial explanation. If you listen to my series on Daniel, Daniel 12, 12, he speaks of the 1,335 days. Not 1290, but the 1,335 days. There appears to be some brief period of time after the tribulation is over until the second coming. With that said, no one can calculate the day or the hour. Some people say, well, we may not know the day or the hour, but we know the year. Look, that's just stupidity. But with that said, we do know the time frame. We can know the season. Paul has already reminded us. Now, as to the times and the epics, 1 Thessalonians 5, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Christians, when they come to Bible prophecy, <clears throat> they tend to go to one of two extremes. They either throw out the baby with the bathwater where they say, you can't know anything. Uh, you know, no, nothing's happening. Everything's the same. That's what the mockers do. Everything's the same since the beginning of creation. We don't have any idea when Jesus is coming. Well, when <clears throat> the writer of the Hebrews admonishes us not to forsake our assembling together and our need to gather together all the more, as you see the day drawing near, there's an assumption that you can understand the seasons, the times, and the epics. So you've got two extremes, some who try to set dates, all these crazies, most of them unbelievers who end up discrediting Christians or they're trying to make money on books because this sells or you have those who are like blind guides, and they say, oh, we don't know anything. Now, understand, we can know something about the moral climate because Jesus likened it to the coming of the days of Noah and the days of Lot. He, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, speaks of this global empire, as does the prophet Daniel, as does the revelation. So globalism, with Israel back in the land, will be a mark of the final days before Jesus comes. And there will be apostasy. Now, we're going to look at a particular expression of apostasy this morning, the apostasy. But to have the apostasy, seeds of apostasy need to be sown. And that's what's happening in our day. Seeds of apostasy are being sown. Forget the fact that many evangelical pulpits are now compromised more and more. Just think about Americans and their attendance of church. Now, in 1978, 75% of Americans said they went to church. When you added the word weekly to it, 
45% of the population said they went to church. Today, when you add the word weekly, whether it's Gallup, Bonner, Pew Research, or the Harvard Institute of Religion, when you add the word weekly, it drops to 20%. What does that mean? It means about 80% of Americans today are finding more, quote-unquote, fulfilling things to do than to be in church with the people of God. And by the way, these are pre-COVID numbers. And think about what's happened for the last five years between four to 7,000 churches between the year have permanently shut their doors. My wife and I, we were up visiting my mother just before she passed. We went up to Wells Beach, Maine. Five churches in the town. One had become a gift store that we went into. The other four, just the doors were shut. I asked a person why they should. Nobody comes anymore. They're just shut. Every year, churches are closing by the thousands. And half of the churches in America for the last five years have not added even one single new member. The climate is changing rapidly and drastically. And now there are approximately 5 million new people every year, especially in the millenniums on down, who call themselves a part of the religiously unaffiliated. Why is this? Because as we studied in Matthew 24, verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Cold hearts produce apathetic hearts. Now listen. The seeds are being sown for this coming great worldwide apostasy. And today, if you stand up in a pulpit and you stand for what's right, you're called intolerant or you're judgmental. If you call someone a sinner today, if you say your behavior is sinful, what's your problem? Why are you so intolerant? We're supposed to just love everyone which is what that man's testimony was to me out in the hallway. We're supposed to just love everyone. And so today, the sin is not to commit the sin. The sin today is to call the sin a sin. That's where we have devolved to. And so people are no longer wicked. They're just weak. They're no longer evil. They're they're just ill. And we've redefined what sin is. And these are the seeds that are being sown for the coming apostasy. Do you think the average American is thinking, wow, man, God is judging us. He's going to judge us if we don't get right. It's the furthest thing from most people's minds. They think everything's fine. We're just going to go on living and buying our houses and Marrying off our kids. Let no one deceive you, he says. In any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now notice verse 4, because the Antichrist is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now this growing apostasy that we see, not just in America, but across the planet, is not yet the apostasy. You might want to circle the article. 
He's talking about a specific apostasy. The apostasy of all apostasies that's large-scale, wholesale, widespread, and it's connected to the coming of the Antichrist. And so Paul is saying, look, you've not missed the rapture. You're not in the day of the Lord because if you were in the day of the Lord, you would have seen the apostasy and you would have seen the Antichrist because the rapture precedes. Our gathering together precedes these events. They precede the coming day of the Lord. Look, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. He's coming and you need to be ready. Now, just know that when the apostasy comes, it will come through Satan's superman. The man of lawlessness, also called the son of perdition. By the way, there's only one other person in Scripture who's called the son of perdition, and that's Judas. And so Satan has always had a master plan. The overarching goal is to take as many people into eternal judgment where his end will be. But he also has always wanted worship. That's what made the devil the devil, right? Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. And he is going, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, to reach that goal of worship through his coming Antichrist. But understand, he comes in the place of Christ. There's a reason why Messiah, Messiah in Hebrew, Christos in Greek, it's the same thing like Carlos, Carl, same word, two different languages. There's a reason why he calls Antichrist, because he comes in the place of Christ, and he comes instead of Christ. He comes mimicking the Lord Jesus Christ. But the two are far apart. Jesus in the Revelation is called the Lamb. This man in the Revelation is called the Beast. Jesus came to heal. This man will come only to destroy. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Even so, the Antichrist will be the visible expression of the invisible devil. They're diametrically opposed. Now, you cannot say it would be a stretch, and I think a misrepresentation of Scripture to say that the Antichrist is Satan incarnate. But just like Judas, who is indwelt by Satan, this man, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, will be indwelt and empowered by the evil one himself. So that will be the climate for his coming. Consider, too, the clue to his character, the clue to his character. He does not want people to miss this, and there are a lot of confused people. Occasionally on the Bible line, someone has asked, do you think we're in the tribulation period? And of course, the answer is no. Well, listen, that's what the church at Thessalonica thought. Maybe we're in the tribulation period. Maybe the day of the Lord has come, because look at this gross persecution. They're killing us. So you need sound theology. The Antichrist is the one who opposes, verse 4, and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, if you remember in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gave us some insight as to the timing of this event. And so we looked at verses 4 through 14 in one message, and then the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, Jesus affirms what Daniel said. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, that's the temple, let the reader understand. And so it's right in the middle of this seven-year period that the Antichrist, as Paul describes, will go into this rebuilt temple and display himself as being God. And so Satan is going to try to mimic the Lord Jesus. He is going to claim to be God incarnate. He's going to say, I am God, worship me. 
And we'll see next time how that will be a red flag to Jewish people that he could not possibly be the true Messiah. Now, here's a picture of the Temple Mount. I thought this was a great shot in the evening up from one side. And this, as most of you know, is the single most disputed place of real estate on the planet. 35 acres. Right where the future temple will sit currently is the Dome of the Rock. But the Antichrist will come. I'm not sure how that dome will be removed. Maybe through the war of Gog and Magog that we studied early on in this series. But somehow the Antichrist will allow the Jewish people to rebuild their temple. And all we know is that it needs to be in place and operating and functioning by the middle of the seven-year point. And so when the people of this world are left behind and chaos has come upon the planet. What do people want? They want order. Why were so many Americans willing, not after seven or eight weeks, but seven or eight months and two years, willing to give up their freedoms because of fear? They were afraid what COVID might do. There will be fear on the planet like the world has never seen. What do people want when they're fearful? They want security. And this man will come in the place of and instead of Christ, and he will present himself in the form of an unholy trinity. Think about it. Satan presents himself during the time of the tribulation, the dragon, as in the place of God the Father. The Antichrist will come in the place of God the Son, and the false prophet will function like the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in the subsequent weeks. He will point men to the Antichrist. Satan has always wanted to be worshipped, and so this text says he will exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship, taking his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That is known as the abomination of desolation. All worship will be mediated through this particular man, Satan's Superman, and he will have his wish. Now, people often ask, do you think he's alive? Do you think we can identify him? I suspect he may very well be alive, could be a world leader who's functioning today. Uh, Some have said that Satan has had a man in the wings in every century waiting to step up to the plate. I don't believe that for one skinny minute. Satan, while he's not omniscient, he knows a lot of the Bible, as seen in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. And so he knows that Israel has to be in the land. They have to be reestablished as a nation for the final events that will lead up to the second coming to happen. So that happened in May 14, 1948. So I suspect that ever since that time, maybe he's had a man in the wings. Now, all kinds of speculations have been made throughout the centuries. In the first century, some concluded Nero was the Antichrist because he hated Christians and slaughtered them in masses. A few years later, in 81 AD, Domitian, the emperor, some thought he was the Antichrist because he demanded to be worshipped. In the Middle Ages, many thought Muhammad was the Antichrist because he desecrated and tore down all the Christian holy places. He repudiated the Lord Jesus, and if you didn't support Islam, you were persecuted. Later on, Emperor Frederick II, uh, Pope Gregory IX, 
Uh, they found great satisfaction in calling each other the Antichrist. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and other reformers identified the Pope as the Antichrist. They were obviously wrong. A hundred years later, in well, it was written in 1646, the final edition, but wasn't confirmed until 1647, the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it was voted on in the land of Scotland, in an article 25, it says, there is no other head of the church than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could certainly say amen to that. In no sense can the Pope of Rome be the head of it. We would say amen to that. Rather, and this was driven by a theology they had, rather he is the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of damnation who glorifies himself as opposed to Christ in everything related to God. They thought literally when they penned this confession that the Pope who was alive was indeed the Antichrist. In more contemporary times, Napoleon, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Khrushchev, Gorbachev, who just Gorbachev, who just died a few days ago, right? He had that big birthmark, and some Christians were saying, oh, that's the mark of the beast. And then uh, some said, well, it was Bill Clinton. He was the Antichrist, and Hillary was the false prophet. <laughs> and then Barack Obama, oh, he's the Antichrist. But for some strange reason, no one, I mean, no one believes Joe Biden is the Antichrist. I mean, nobody. Now, we do not know who the Antichrist is. And if you're able to identify him, that's not good because that means you were left behind. He won't be revealed until after our gathering together. Some have keyed off of his numerical value, 666. Some have even taken the Latin letters because Latin, like Greek, has numerical values. In Greek, alpha is one, beta is two, and so on. And they took the Greek letters to uh, the words written on the Pope's crown, and they came up with 666 with a little bit of manipulation. I think we would do well to learn from history to be a little more humble and cautious about trying to identify the Antichrist. Now, beyond how the Antichrist is revealed, secondly, let's think about how the Antichrist is restrained, how he's restrained. Verse 6, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, as much as Satan wants to bring his program to earth, the man of sin, the Antichrist, is restrained from doing so by the restrainer. So who or what is the restrainer? Now, Paul didn't have to spell it out for the church at Thessalonica. Why? Because they already knew. He was there three weeks left, which in light of their questions tells you that a lot of what Paul taught them was prophetic in nature. He preached prophecy. Only there three weeks. I guess prophecy was important to him. He says, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time, he will be revealed. So God's apostle doesn't explain to them because he knows they already know. So how can we know? Well, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And there's basically three prevalent interpretations as to who the restrainer is that's worth your time. There's only one that's obviously correct, but three that are worth your time, and then there's a host of others that are just weird. So let me give you the three main 
arguments in the history of the church that people have used to identify the restrainer. One, some would say the restrainer is human government. The restrainer is human government. And it's argued based on Romans 13 that describes government as God's tool to restrain evil. Look, it's not smart to defund the police. It's just not even smart to take their sword away and to disrespect them so that nobody wants to serve as a cop. And I hope you realize there's like huge recruiting problems, not just in our state, but across the United States, because people don't want to take the job if they're going to be spit on and mocked and disrespected. I mean, who would want it? But certainly it's not human government. First of all, human governments often do not fulfill their God-ordained responsibility. Instead of curbing evil, sometimes they help to spread it. Second, according to both the books of Daniel and the Revelation, the Antichrist is the head of a one-world super government, and he'll bring hell on earth. So the instrument that indeed will bring the great tribulation, I don't think is the instrument that will prevent it from coming. And third, the restrainer, if you look carefully, is described by two pronouns in the Greek New Testament as reflected here in the New American Standard. You should circle them. In verse 6, the Apostle Paul speaks of what restrains him. Circle the word what. And in verse 7, he speaks of who restrains him. Circle the word who. So clearly, Paul's explanation at least includes a person by the pronoun who and not simply a government. Well, wanting to be faithful to the text and to the pronouns, a second view that has been held is the restrainer is an angel. The restrainer is an angel. The only problem with that interpretation, if you were here when we covered the book of Jude, Jude 9 teaches when Michael, the archangel, the greatest and highest and holiest and mightiest of all God's angels, when he confronts Satan, the Bible says he did not dare in his own power to try to control him. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you. The mightiest of all God's angels did not try to restrain Satan. So to say that the restrainer is an angel, really has no biblical precedent. And there are many problems, and I should tell you that the first two views are held by amillennialists because they already believe the tribulation has been fulfilled during the time of the Westminster Confession of Faith. They didn't take the past view, the preterist view. They took the historical view that it was being fulfilled, and that's why they said, oh, the Pope there, he's the Antichrist. And so their theology forces them to come to these conclusions because they deny there's a future for Israel because it appeared that God was doing nothing with Israel for 1,900 years, but how wrong they were. So the third view, I think, helps us to understand that the restrainer is God, the Holy Spirit. I think a decision as to the identity of the restrainer can be made by just asking and answering the question, Who is powerful enough to hold back Satan? And the obvious answer is God, the Holy Spirit. And I believe he is clearly the restrainer for a number of reasons. First of all, during the days of the Old Testament, he was seen as restraining sin. In Genesis 6-3, Moses recorded, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not remain or not strive with man forever. And you know that when God's patience in Noah's day was exhausted, 
what followed the great flood. And we've already learned in this series that Jesus parallels his return from heaven with the days of Noah. And indeed, when the Holy Spirit of God stops restraining, judgment will fall in the next seven years that will unfold. So look at verse 7. I want you to notice verse 7. It says here, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So even though the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, he's called the spirit of Antichrist in Scripture, he is someday going to be embodied. But the reason his embodiment has not fleshed itself out in time and space, according to the Apostle Paul, is because of this restrainer. There's a restraint, but someday his restraint will be removed. Now, the first reason, I think, for believing the Spirit of God is the restrainer is because of the parallel between what he did in Noah's day and what he will do in a future day. But secondly, is because of the pronouns, as I've already noted. In verse 6, it speaks of what restrains him, and in verse 7, who restrains him. Now, think your way through this. In verse 6, he uses the neutral pronoun, what, and in verse 6, he uses the masculine pronoun, he. So, there's only one person in all of Scripture who can be described with both a neuter or neutral pronoun and a masculine pronoun, and that is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, pneumatos, spirit, is a neuter word, and so sometimes pneumatos is modified with the word it. Of course, Jesus breaks all the rules in John 14 through 16 because he speaks of pneumatos, the spirit, but then he speaks of him as a he. Why? Because he wants to underscore that he's not some power, he's not some force, he is a living person. And sadly, I think a lot of young children are quite confused now through the Star Wars series, when it came out in the 1970s, the uh, author of Star Wars, who wrote the books in which the movies was done, was a pantheist. He's still alive, at least the last time I looked. And his goal, as written in his own book, was to spread pantheism. And so I've talked to some little children sometimes, and they talk about the good force and the evil force, and man, they got it all wrong. It's not some force. We're talking about a warfare between a holy God and the evil one. So in verse 6, the Apostle Paul is referring to the Spirit's instrument. He indwells the church. And so the church is going to be caught up, will be removed, and his restraint through the church will stop. Now, I know in the New King James, they take the word he and they capitalize it, capital he. Now, that's interpretive. I think they're right, but it's still interpretive because in the Greek text, there's no capital or lowercase distinction. It's either all uppercase or all lowercase, and the reader has to supply who is involved, and when it's God, clearly God, they always put it. But to give freedom here so that people can discern for themselves, it's in the lowercase. But understand, the Spirit of God is restraining sin right now in the church, and when He is removed there'll be no dissenting voices. No one to speak up against evil. And the rottenness of corruption will spread like it has never spread before. 
and it will leave freedom for this worldwide leader to come to the forefront. Now, we are still called to be salt and light. That's why I ask you to take this card when you leave today and call this. Because one of these three people, who I will leave unnamed, is planning to filibuster. He did it once before for two weeks. And through his communication with Planned Parenthood and another pro-abort group, he's planning to filibuster it. None do what God's people fought to protect. Another senator here in this card, she's not even planning to show up. Now, she replaced my senator because where I live... I'm represented by a particular senator, and the senator I was once represented by, I called him and pled with him for 30 minutes on the phone because he was a pastor. On three occasions, he stopped the pro-life bill from ever getting out on the floor for a vote. I said, well, you've obviously got your congregation buffaloed because your secretary, your personal assistant told me you were pro-life. But as the chair of that committee, you've stopped it on three occasions. I said, if you are a Christian, you're going to meet God in his divine discipline. But it's very difficult for me to think that someone who's regenerated by the Spirit of God, who's a new creature who has the mind of Christ, can be in favor of abortion. And just a few short weeks later, a young man tragically went into his church and shot him and eight other people. Look, we need to speak up. We're not greasing the skids to bring in the second coming. We still speak up. But understand, there's coming a time when we won't be able to speak up because the church will be caught up, we will be removed, and the restrainer, through his instrument of restraint, will stop. Now, by the way, this is, again, an argument for the pre-tribulation rapture, and there are many, because if the instrument that the Spirit restrains through, the church is removed, he doesn't leave us. Jesus said when you, that when the Spirit comes, he'll be in you forever. Paul said when you hear the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you're sealed with the Spirit of God, and you're sealed for the day of redemption, so he never leaves you. But there is a sense in which there is a reverse Pentecost in that the spirit in the church is removed. Now, he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. We'll see he still has a ministry on the earth during that time. But he'll be taken away. Then verse 8 says, that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That happens at the second coming. So let's be clear here. These verses are not teaching that at the rapture, the Holy Spirit is gone because He's omnipresent. And He will bring people to the Savior during this seven-year period. And men need to be convicted by the Spirit of God to have their eyes opened. But the born-again, baptized, and dwelt body of Christ will be gone. And with it will come chaos in a perfect atmosphere for a one-world leader. That brings me to the final point very quickly, how the Antichrist is released. We'll only spend a moment on it because we're going to spend more time on this. I want you to notice his release will come on three levels. 
First, his release will come with deception. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Now, again, I think it's an exaggeration to say that the Antichrist is the incarnation of Satan, like Jesus is the incarnation of the Father. But he will, like the son of perdition, Judas, be indwelt by him, and he will come with powers and signs and false wonders. He is speaking in verse 1 of the Lord Jesus, and in verse 9, he speaks of the Antichrist, and he uses the same word coming, the parousia. We speak of the coming of Christ, verse 1. Well, here in verse 9, he speaks of the coming of the lawless one. Why? Because he mimics Jesus. In addition, in chapter 1 and verse 7, Jesus is going to be revealed with his mighty angels and flaming fire when he will deal out retribution. We're here in chapter 2 and verses 3, 6, and 8. The lawless one is described as being revealed. Again, he comes to, notice, according to verse 8, with power, signs, and false wonders. That's precisely how the Lord Jesus is described. Remember on Pentecost, Peter stood up and he said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested you by God with powers and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Look at verse 9. This Antichrist is the one whose coming is accord with the activity of Satan. How? With all power and signs and false wonders. The three identical words used to describe Jesus are used to describe the Antichrist. There are different words that God gives in the New Testament that describes when he breaks the laws that he wrote into the universe. One is called miracle. It's the word dunamis. We get our word dynamite. And when God wants to underscore the power of a miracle, he uses the word dunamis. That's used of the Antichrist. The second word is sign or samion, and it refers to a miracle with a message. And so John loves this word especially, and so in his gospel he records seven signs or miracles with a message behind them, five that are unique to his gospel. And so when the Antichrist comes with miracles, there'll be a message behind some of them. And then the third word is wonder. It's the word teros, and it's the word for miracle that produces a sense of awe, like awe. Can you imagine when the Red Sea split in two and you walk through and these huge walls of water, as the text says? Oh, wow. That will be the response. When Satan's man comes, because he comes to mimic Christ, he comes with deception. Secondly, his release will be followed by delusion, by delusion. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. So first of all, it's clear that those who are deluded are those who had an opportunity to receive Jesus, but they did not respond. Verse 11, notice, begins with the words, and for this reason, it's looking back to verse 10. For what reason? These who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So behind this great delusion is this great refusal. People refuse the Lord. It's the same thing in John 3.19. Jesus reminded us, some people will not come to the light because they love. Agapao, same word in John 3.16 that describes God's love. They willfully love and choose their evil deeds. Verse 12 says, these people took pleasure in wickedness. 
So the Bible is clear that God will send a strong delusion, as the King James renders it, to those who did not receive or believe the truth. People ask me, will people be saved during the tribulation? Yes, they will. We've already studied that. You say, well, how will they get saved? Well, the Spirit of God will be at work. And as Revelation 7 indicates, he's going to convert 144,000 Jewish evangelists or missionaries. He's going to have two witnesses up on the Temple Mount, and there's going to be an angel that preaches the gospel. And John, after he sees the witness of the 144,000, sees a grand number from every tribe, tongue, and nation that you can't even count like the sands of the seashore. Jesus said it this way, this gospel of the kingdom shall preach to the whole world and then the end shall come. He's talking about what's going to happen during the seven-year period. The gospel will go to every single people group in the world and people will hear and some will be saved from all of them. Now, finally, his release will result in damnation. His release will result in damnation. According to verse 12, God is going to allow this great delusion. God will bring it in order that, here's the reason, that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. If you do not receive Christ on this side of the rapture, I can promise you anyone here within the sound of my voice You're hearing a gospel preacher. You'll have no excuse. I'm not talking about for some aborigine in Papua New Guinea. I'm talking about people who have heard the plan of salvation. People say, well, you know, they'll have a chance to get saved. It'll just be really difficult because so many Christians are going to get their heads cut off. And if you won't receive Christ in this day, it will be really hard to receive Christ in that day. No, you won't receive Christ if you've heard the gospel with power and clarity and you said no. Jesus teaches the same truth in John 12. It can even happen in this day. They may be judged who took pleasure in wickedness. Paul has already said in 2 Corinthians 1.9 that these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Now, it's not God's desire, but the whole process here is grimly logical. First, they took pleasure in wickedness, and so they make sin their deliberate choice. Second, they refuse to receive the love of the truth. Third, the activity of Satan gets in them and deceives them. And so they experience a strong delusion and they believe, literally it says, the lie. They believe the lie, that the Antichrist is who he claims to be. And so it's a slippery slope and it begins with a love for sin. And that love for sin leads to a rejection of the truth, and that leads to deception, and that leads to a hardening of the heart and ultimately eternal condemnation. Today is the day to be saved. How are we going to apply this text? Let me suggest three applications. Number one, we must never forget that Satan can deceive even believers. Remember, he's writing to believers who had miscalculated the rapture And so they were knocked off kilter, and they were shaken. And really, the only defense against deception is the Bible. I meet Christians who are all rattled, and one guy came in so upset and thought because he had gotten the vaccine, he had taken the mark of the beast. Now, whether you should have taken the vaccine, that's another story. But it was not the mark of the beast. 
And so sound theology helps us not to be so quickly deceived. And the only place to get that is in the Word. That's why pastors are supposed to open the Word. Not for three minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, not a bunch of stories. My preaching is short compared to early colonial America, where the sermons were rarely less than two hours. Secondly, we must never forget our urgency in sharing with the lost. Too many Christians are involved in trying to reform society through politics and education. There's nothing wrong with being salt and light. When we stand up for what's right, we're holding up God's standard, and the law is God's school teacher to lead people to faith. When they see the standard, transgenderism is evil. Homosexuality is wrong. Marriage, extramarital sex is evil. Premarital sex is evil. Drunkenness is evil. Greed is evil. Abortion is wrong. When people see that, it brings conviction. And that, well, how can I be forgiven? through Jesus. So we need to remember that our primary goal is to preach the gospel. The solutions to the problems in this nation is not, they're not found in the White House, they're found in the church house. We're to take as many people into the kingdom that we can. Third and finally, we must never forget that the heart is deceitfully wicked. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Have you trusted Christ? Paul was uncertain about some of the Corinthians who had made a public confession, had been baptized, and he exhorts them in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Peter exhorted people in 2 Peter 1, 10. He said, be sure of your calling and election. Jesus spoke of a broad way and a wide gate that led to destruction and a narrow gate and a small road that leads to life. And he did it in the context of people who said we're Christians. In fact, he didn't go for some ho-hum kind of testimony. We preached in your name. We did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Three things unbelievers can do. But Jesus will say, I never knew you. They were not truly of the faith. So the time to examine yourself is now. It's too late after the rapture. Do you love sin? I didn't say, do you sin, but do you love sin? If you have an appetite for the things of the world, probably means you've never met the living God. And so we are living in a day where sin is growing, it is multiplying, and we must choose sides. Examine your own hearts. Make sure you be of the faith. And if you know you're not, today would be the day. Look, none of us know either personally or prophetically how much time we have. So the time to be ready is right now. Holy Father, I thank you for what the Apostle Paul wrote by the Spirit of God's inspiration that we could study it today and do some personal inventory. I pray for those who are listening in Grays and Graniteville on the internet or some who will listen to this through various broadcasts in different parts of the world. I pray for each and every one who is unsure whether heaven is really their home, that they would call upon Jesus, believe in his finished work, 
For you promised because he did what he did and died for all of our sin and you raised him that if we'll call on him, you will instantly and eternally save us. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us, Father, to be faithful in urging men and women and boys and girls to receive Jesus. Help us be faithful with the stewardship of the gospel. We ask it in your holy name. Amen.